Hello podcast listeners, and welcome to another episode of Living Well with Kathleen Saunders, your weekly podcast where we discuss the financial, physical, spiritual, and social well-being of everyday people like you and me. The information shared in this show is for general information purposes only and should not be used to make any personal changes to your lifestyle or health without consulting the appropriate financial, medical, or healthcare professionals. My guest today is Sharon Ojabo. Sharon's story begins in Zimbabwe's second largest city of Bulawayo, where she was raised by her grandmother in a household with several cousins. From an early age, she learned to negotiate for and lead for win-win outcomes. Circumstances and not choice found her in journalism school because her uncle said she was too young to work as a temporary teacher, a career path for many who couldn't afford post-secondary education fees. After working as a senior business journalist for Zimbabwe's national news agency, Sharon went on a study leave to pursue a postgraduate program in international development. Again, circumstances and not choice caused her to abruptly transition into not-for-profit, advocating for the rights of women within the realms of HIV AIDS. Sharon and her family moved to Canada in 2005 a successful strategy leader with broad experience managing multi-million dollar global projects, Sharon built a rewarding career leading international health projects in different countries across Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Well respected for her integrity and communal money management skills, Sharon found herself leading and coordinating many Zimbabwe community initiatives. In 2018, Sharon and her business partner co-founded a thriving women's Facebook group called 263 True North. The group brings together women from Zimbabwe who live in Canada. This virtual tribe of women provides opportunities for learning and leading in various areas from sharing home decor tips to settlement support, career growth support, financial literacy and mental health. Sharon graduated from Zimbabwe's then Institute of Mass Communication with a major in broadcast journalism. She was a teacher assistant at University of Natal. She graduated from the university with a master's in science in development studies. Her second postgraduate degree in global health is from the University of Manchester. Sharon has worked as a senior project traveling from Zimbabwe to cover the United Nations General Assembly Democratic of Republic Congo peace negotiations and other critical national economic missions. In Canada, she has worked for Children Believe, integrating child protection into child sponsorship and supporting child sponsorship managers in the countries of Burkina Faso, Ethiopia, Ghana, Nicaragua, Paraguay and India. Sharon led Canada's fourth largest global maternal newborn and child health project, a $26 million initiative in Canada, Cambodia, Myanmar, the Philippines and Rwanda. Her current portfolio includes stopping the spread of malaria 
and stemming the HIV tide in southern African countries of Malawi and Zimbabwe, specifically targeting adolescent girls and young women. Sharon continues in her leadership role at Plan International Canada, where she currently is employed. All right, well, welcome, Sharon, and thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you for having me, Kathleen. It's an honor to be here this evening. Awesome. Great. You know, Sharon, I'm really looking forward to learn about the awesome work that your organization does and the people it helps. So please share with us a little bit about Plan Canada and the work that you guys do there. Thank you. Uh, so Plan Canada is actually a worldwide federation with um, national offices in different countries. And there is two uh, components to the countries that work under the Plan Federation. We have what we call national offices, which are the offices that mobilize a lot of the fundraising. So Canada is one such country, uh, along with the, uh, the United Kingdom, Japan, um, Germany, and then we have the implementing uh, offices which is where the bulk of the work we do is educated. Okay. So at the core of our mission is to end poverty. And awesome. we do that by addressing the very complex uh, layers that cause uh, poverty. So there are a number of those, and I know we'll touch on those as we continue with our conversation. Okay, awesome. So go ahead and tell me a little bit about, you know, there's a program I know that's called I Am A Girl. Tell us a little bit about that program and what they do. And then tell us a little bit about the program you work in, because you don't specifically work in that area, I Am A Girl, right? That program. Mm -hmm. So I Am A Girl is what I would call our rallying cry. And it comes from our observation after years of working in international development, recognizing that at the core of uh, poverty eradication is the um, need to bring equality between uh, boys and girls. So in other words, because I am a girl, speaks to the inequality that exists in that um, the recognition that girls don't have as equal an opportunity as the boys, and that is what uh, limits us as a global community to effectively address poverty. Because for as long as the girls are left behind, we are not able, or we will not be able to meet the development goals that we set for ourselves as a global uh, community. So as long as the girls are not in school, uh, and they don't have access to health services, or they are being forced into marriage before they are ready. Um, so these are some examples that uh, made us realize that we needed to come up with a specific plan that targets the girls to keep them in school, mm -hmm. to meet their unique needs that prevent them from not only accessing the benefits of uh, development, but uh, from accessing even their most basic of human rights, like the right to health. For example, um, they need permission to access health services. 
access to education, when uh, resources are scarce in some families, it is the education of the girls that is compromised, or when resources are scarce, they will marry off the girl so that the family can use the money from the right tribe sometimes to take their, to put the boy in school or to buy their basic uh, necessities. Oh, wow. And that is at the core of the work that we do as plans. And that's how we came about with this. Because I am a girl, because I am a girl, I have less opportunity to access a lot of the things that we take for granted. And over the years, there's also the recognition that uh, this is not just uh, something that is unique in developing countries where we work, but it is true as well here in Canada, in our First Nation communities, for example, where uh, we are very much aware of the gender-based violence, that uh, the girls are disproportionately represented among people who are likely to be sexually assaulted uh, and things like that. So there is really an urgent uh, need to address the unique needs of the, the girls globally, not just in the developing countries. Right. So it seems to me that a lot of these child brides and uh, where poverty lies with these young uh, young girls, especially, are happening in like undeveloped countries. And is that really due to lack of education on behalf of the people in that community? And what is Plan doing to help educate the the uh, community to realize this is not the right thing? Yes. So broadly, that is what we uh, want to do to to reverse um, a lot of the cultural beliefs and some of these uh, harmful traditional practices. And interestingly, we do it by building on a lot of the good traditional practices. So you'll find that in a community where um, marrying off uh, the possible marrying off of these young girls uh, exists uh, parallel to that. You'll find that there are some com- uh, traditional practices that seek to protect uh, the girls or protect members of the community. So we tend to identify those um, practices or those structures that exist, the uh, traditional leaders, the Start from recognizing their role as uh, what we call gatekeepers in the community and recognize that they are the ones who uh, make and also implement the local laws and policies. And they are also, by nature of their position, they are social uh, influencers. So we work with those traditional structures, starting with the traditional leaders, and uh, raising their awareness in terms of the benefits that uh, can accrue to individual households and to the community at large. If, um, for example, girls are given a fair chance mm-hmm. at education and they can, uh, when they're educated and they become mothers, they make better choices when this is delayed, when um, marriage and motherhood is delayed, there is so much that can be gained 
mm-hmm. by uh, not just the individual families, but by the community at large. Um, so we work, we build on those existing structures, and we tap also into the knowledge. So we don't just parachute into a community and uh, bring in Western ideas. And what we've learned as well is that at the center of humanity, we all want the same thing, desire a good quality of life. So departing from those shared uh, desires and values and uh, recognizing that families don't uh, send off their child to be married at 13, they do realize that it's not the right thing to do, mm-hmm. but uh, it's opening up to other options. So when we design our international development uh, programs, we take into account that we try to understand um, what is at the root of some of these uh, practices, what motivates our families to come to those decisions. And we do that uh, by having mostly a consultative uh, process that seeks to, to understand, respecting the local knowledge and practices and trying to understand why things happen the way they do. And then when we know why, then our responses address the, the root causes. So, for example, if uh, access to education for girls is limited by uh, resources, for example, uh, our program uh, that we teach to the donors would... Uh, Factor in, for example, um, tuition fee support for the girls, which is the program that I'm working on in Zimbabwe that includes paying uh, education uh, fees for these girls. So in the recent past, and I used recent uh, fairly loosely, maybe in the last 10 or so years, uh, we recognize as well that some of the... um, factors that uh, are barriers to girls uh, accessing education is things uh, like uh, how they manage uh, menstruation. So if the school doesn't have adequate privacy for a girl to manage her uh, menstruation uh, in a dignified way, they miss school during their menstrual period. Mm, And uh, the more they miss they fall behind and the less confident they become. Mm -hmm. So they don't progress and when they progress and they are older and in a lower grade, their chances of staying in school are diminished. Mm -hmm. And then we start to lose them from the school system and then they are more at uh, risk to stop coming to school and they are vulnerable to being married off mm-hmm. early. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of things to consider when we are designing programs that respond uh, to this. Okay, awesome. I, I wanted to ask you, Sharon, you mentioned barriers just now and uh, menstrual cycle be, being one. What would be a reason that a family uh, would go ahead and sell their daughter? Is it usually money? It's... um a combination of things and uh, 
when the life of a person is not valued, it is very easy to, um, like, commodify that life. It becomes a commodity that can be transacted on. So that's why it's one of the central things that we do uh, in my organization is to raise awareness on uh, human rights and uh, help our communities that we work with to realize that uh, rights uh, are not earned. Rights are not given, but by being, you have. Mm-hmm. That's, there's that universality of, of rights that uh, people in Canada, in Zimbabwe, in Malawi, in Rwanda, they have the same right. So the right to education, the right to health, the right to make decisions over one's body. Okay. And that's where equality stems from when we realize that we have uh, equal rights. So our rights are equal. I don't have less rights than you. Therefore, you cannot decide on my behalf. Mm-hmm. And realizing that uh, rights um, are interdependent. Mm-hmm. You can't say, I'm giving you, oh, we're allowing her to, to go to school. Therefore, uh, she can still go to school and get married. As long as she's going to school, she can be a, a child bride. Right. Okay, so I'm not. Yeah, so yeah. she has a right to yeah. protection. They that, come together as a package. Yeah, awesome. That's good. And also, it's not because I'm a girl, I'm less than. I'm equal to, and that's what you're educating them on. Is that they're not less than the boys, or you know, they're they're equal to. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. What are some of the other barriers that girls face um, in regards to education? You mentioned child marriage and the menstrual cycle. Are there anything else? I, I talked about the, so the marriage part would sit with the traditional uh, practices, yes. what we call is uh, harmful traditional practices. Mm-hmm. And sometimes some of those uh, practices are not harmful in themselves. In their way of protecting the girls, it could also prevent access to healthcare or to school. So when a government is unable or when a government fails to deliver on uh, rights to their citizens where schools are so far from their home, a family might decide that it's safer for the girl child to stay at home. I see. Okay. If a health facility is too far, mm-hmm. a family might decide that it's too far. You can't go. And they keep uh, the child uh, at home. So also there's a part of the government whom we call a duty bearer. They have the duty of care, of responsibility to deliver on these things that uh, ensure that everyone has opportunity to enjoy their rights. Mm-hmm. So that's where also organizations such as uh, Plan International come in and, um, uh, for example, might in one country provide bicycles to the girls to ride to school or support in the construction of a school uh, so that the walking distance is shortened or provide uh, boarding facilities at a 
school if um, usually that's the cost uh, effective way where it can be done very quickly to just put up a low cost boarding facility so that the girls can uh, attend school and stay there and then they go home for for the weekend okay nice. so there are a number of um, barriers uh, and uh, one I think I would like for people to understand is that the the responses are also multi-layered and multifaceted because we are dealing with a multifaceted uh, problem, uh, and there's also issues around self-esteem, uh, isolation. If, for example, you have not been going to school, you are not um, you, your right to play has not been actualized. You don't have friends. You are staying at home and things like that. So. Our interventions have to address uh, those components as well, right? Uh, when the child or the girl is readmitted to school and uh, having these uh, girls' clubs where the girls can come together and talk about anything mm-hmm. because we know that uh, social assets are important yes. to, to the girls, provide a safe space where they can meet and there's someone who gives them uh, accurate information because access to information is key. So the program that I, one of the programs that I work on directly is uh, with adolescent girls and young women and uh, HIV prevention. So when we provide them with correct and accurate information about transmission of HIV and AIDS and provide them with tools for them to make decisions around their sex and sexuality and also where to access services when they need them. Uh, It's very helpful because sometimes it's not possible for them which uh, I would also say is something that's global. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a difficult conversation for many parents to have with their adolescent girls. Definitely. Uh, around mm-hmm. sex and sexuality. Mm-hmm. So if we can create those safe spaces where they can uh, talk about those things. And uh, one of the things as well that we do in our programming is um, to, as part of building that safe and supportive environment for the adolescent girls is um, working with people in the community. I talked before about utilizing the existing structures. So we have in many communities older women who we then train and provide with up-to-date information. And these also form part of that safe and supportive environment for for the girls. And the girls can go to them. Mm -hmm. And also a big part of the work that these women are doing in Zimbabwe, for example, is they're helping parents um, to talk to their girls and boys about sex and sexuality. Mm. We call them parent-child communication facilitators. So these women and men in the community are trained on how they can coach uh, women and children to, um, I mean, caregivers and children to have these discussions in a place of no judgment and uh, using factual 
inflammation and uh, dispelling the myths around if you have unprotected sex and immediately have a shower, you won't get pregnant. So uh, having those um, sessions Mm -hmm. where caregivers and children can get comfortable with these previously taboo topics. Wow, I sure, I'm sure that must be very beneficial to have those um, uh, facilitators, you said, that are actually helping the parents to understand this because we, we all know that knowledge is power, right? So they are helping one another to understand some of the barriers that they had there before. Exactly, and cha- and exactly. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really when we are working with uh, young girls, it's about safety. Yeah. When they feel safe in a, it's only it's not only in the physical space. The physical space is very important as well, but where they feel safe emotionally, when they are provided with that space, that I can ask mom about this, I can ask auntie, I can ask, I can tell dad that my period has started and I need um, sanitary wear. And not feel ashamed or exactly, exactly. So having those conversations, so also the fathers realize that as part of the grocery shopping, they have to pick up um, two or three packs of sanitary pads to bring back home to their daughters. Mm. And this was one of, I think, one of the highlights of my visits when I went. Uh, to one community and a father talked his wife was present as well and I was asking him uh, what is the biggest benefit for him participating in this program and he said uh, including uh, sanitary pads on my grocery list and feeling no shame wow good for him wow yeah yes absolutely Wow, so mm-hmm. you, you feel like, okay, we are making a difference yeah. in the work that we are doing. I mentioned earlier about the many elements to the problem. And so the response as well has to address those, uh, those, uh, those elements, uh, which includes the training for the parents, I talked about the uh, traditional leaders as well. And then we have the school support in the school. In addition to paying tuition, we want to make sure that the school environment itself is uh, a positive one. The school experience is a positive one for the girls. So we look also at the bylaws in the schools and we empower the girls um, to advocate for themselves hmm. wow. because you want to make sure that the work that we do doesn't end right. when we come to the end of the funding period. Exactly. So the knowledge and uh, should remain in the community. So one of the things that we do is to empower the girls to advocate for themselves. Nice. Where they talk about, uh, in the school setting, they talk about some of the things that are not working in their favor within the school. I talked about menstrual uh, hygiene. Right. Uh, if there has to be maybe a bucket in the in the washroom. So some very basic things that have made significant changes, or um, include having a, 
a, oh my God, scenes, a suggestion box. Okay, right. And the girls talk about where the suggestion box should be uh, located. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole lot of things Mm -hmm. uh, that I learned from just the sighting of that suggestion box. Initially, the leadership at the school had thought the suggestion box should be in a secluded area because people want to go in and put it anonymously. Right. But what they learned from the students was that they wanted it in a high traffic area so that uh, if you are putting in something there or you are going towards there, it doesn't raise eyebrows. Because you can just pass by quickly and throw in your suggestion and people may not notice that you just did that. Right. But if you put it in, in an office or in a secluded area, you're thinking you're doing privacy, it's, it's not being used. Okay. And also just the process of who has access to opening the suggestion box, the governance around that suggestion box in this particular school that I visited they have uh, two keys to the suggestion box. One is held by the student and one by the teacher. So it's the faculty and the learners who go jointly to open it and they sit down together and they read together. And also, so there's no opportunity for anyone else to take them out and discard of them since they're under lock and key. Exactly. Exactly, exactly. And the principal said initially he was not happy with the suggestion box because he felt that it was taking away his authority. And the teachers were not happy too because they felt that students would uh, be attacking them. Mm. And uh, the principal says the turning point for him was that he found a lot of the students were asking for learning resources. Oh, wow. And he was able to use the suggestion box material to advocate for a biology teacher for the school. Awesome. So based on that evidence, Mm -hmm. he was able to build uh, evidence to get a biology teacher for the school. And of course, they've had other major issues such as reporting uh, sexual violations by some faculty and um, things like that. But then now everyone in the school uh, believes in the suggestion box. Awesome, that's good. So Sharon, tell me something. How does a family benefit when a girl, when their daughter stays in school longer? The decision-making, their capacity to make decisions is significantly improved. Mm-hmm. And the, their chances of earning uh, are increased, and the earnings are likely to be higher. So even if they are to start a business, the, the the level of thinking is different, and literacy is a big part mm-hmm. as well. Right. So even when they become a mother, the more years they spend in school, the more likely. The, the chances of their child surviving um, infant mortality because they understand and they have a better appreciation of going for antenatal uh, care, for example, during pregnancy and, and things like that. And the more years they spend in school, the more likely 
they will encourage their own children to go for school for even longer than they have. Awesome. Okay. So there's a lot of benefits uh, around that. Yeah. That's great. Good to know. You know, we're in a time right now of this pandemic with COVID-19. How has that impacted your efforts? It has. It has. We actually have um, a campaign right now. Oh, I can't remember the name. But the essence of that campaign is we are looking for, we're looking to Canadians to partner with us to stop the, the regression. Uh, schools have been closed uh, since March. So in Canada, we have options for online education. But in the countries where we work, uh, where there's uh, limited to no access to uh, a phone, for example. Right, right. So it means those uh, children who have been completely uh, disconnected from the education system. And uh, when the, the school also for the girls, it's a, it's a safe space. It's where we can count the girls and make sure that everyone is there. No one has been uh, married off or has been trafficked. Okay, wow. But now that they are not in school, our biggest worry and concern is that when we do the roll call, when schools reopen, will everyone be there? Mm, wow. So the work that we are doing during our COVID-19, we've had to think very quickly and uh, come up with strategies of how we can continue the communication with the girls. And uh, we've had to do a rapid study to identify what the new risks are that our COVID-19 is bringing to the girls, the boys, and the communities at large. Uh, Just the the lockdown, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, in an environment where there's inequality, uh, there tends to be a lot of vices within the family. And the structures that we have had in place to report, for example, some of the domestic violence, those uh, structures have shifted, those reporting systems have shifted or are no longer existent or people no longer have access to them. And then you have people who are in lockdown and they don't have the resources to stockpile on supplies like Mm -hmm. we did here that we went and lined up at Costco and places like that. Mm -hmm. So these are people who are living hand to mouth and they wake up one morning and they are told, stay home, hmm. and they have no reserves. Wow. So what and, happens? Um, they, have no, they have no water. They have to walk to fetch water, and everyone is at home. So many are in lockdown with their, with their abusers. Wow. And mm-hmm. for the girl child, it means increased workload. Mm-hmm. So the time you were in school, you didn't have to make lunch. But then now you have to make lunch because everyone is at home. You are doing the dishes. You have to go fetch water. You have to go and do this. You have to go and do that. And the boys are playing. Oh, no. So the girls are doing all the work. Oh, wow. Wow. So when we talk about washing hands, frequent washing of hands, uh, my heart sinks because I know who's 
fetching the water hmm. for the hand washing. Hmm. But when, I mean, hmm. so this is again where the equality comes in because I'm thinking, would you not have thought that you know a male should go? They're stronger to carry the water. They're sending women. <laughs> But again, that's part of the inequality, right? That you've been speaking about here. Exactly. Wow. Um, so what we know is that uh, the way work is divided, which is no different to what we have uh, in Canada and in most of the world, is work is divided by by gender, and gender really means what society defines as men's work and women's work. It has nothing to do with our biological or physiological makeup. Mm -hmm. So society decides it's the women who fetch water. Okay. So then they just go fetch water. It's the women who fetch uh, firewood. So then they just have to to do that. And then uh, in a lockdown situation, in some of the countries where we work, there's a lot of corruption, right? So if you need to go to the store to access uh, services, including healthcare, um, the lockdown is being um, enforced by the military. So women are being sexually abused so that they gain passage to get to where they need to go. Wow. So... COVID-19 has raised a lot of uh, abuses and vices that we are seeing, and we are having to respond to to that with uh, limited resources because the, in the work that we do, we have the funding from the donors is uh, prescribed um, to be used for specifics. Mm-hmm. So a, a lot of the money that allows us the flexibility to respond to these uh, fast uh, erupting uh, situations right. is money that we get from Canadians mm-hmm. in terms of sponsorship. So that's money that is less restricted. So would you say, has sponsorship gone up now um, with COVID? I haven't seen the numbers, but my uh, assessment would be that it has, uh, it will likely be reduced. Oh, really? It will likely be reduced because in a moment of crisis, the response is self-preservation, mm, right? Sure. Yeah. So there's a lot of unease within Canada around uh, employment. Mm-hmm. People have lost employment. Uh, people are unsure if they will be employed. Um, COVID-19 has changed how we work so there's been a loss of income there's been uh additional expenses that people have uh have incurred and the first place people tend to cut is things like child sponsorship when their income has been reduced yes yeah unfortunately Unfortunately, and yet that's when we are seeing um an increase in terms of the need and our biggest uh, concern as an organization is um, we've invested so much mm. and there have been a lot of gains that have been made in terms of uh, we're still staying with the education example mm-hmm. where we have more girls 
mm. uh, enrolling in school. Mm. And for us, it's not enough for them to enroll. We then look at the quality of the education where some of our programs train teachers. And then we also look at when they're enrolled, do they progress to the next grade? And we work on that uh, progression until uh, graduation. Because with each step, their chances of being a productive citizen are Hi. amplified, mm-hmm, right? They are, they are increased. So our biggest concern is that we will lose all those gains. Those oh, gains wow. will be eroded. Oh, because it's been since March mm-hmm. that our schools have been closed. Oh, wow, that's terrible. So tell me something. So you depend a lot on donor dollars. Does the government... Uh, help you your agency at all? Oh yes, the Canadian government is thankfully, thank God, mm-hmm. a generous government. And uh, in many crises, we've seen they uh, they match uh, Canadian donations. Uh, sometimes uh, dollar for dollar, or sometimes one uh, Canadian citizen's dollar can be matched by up to four dollars, for example. Oh wow, awesome. And also they provide very good leadership in terms of the the legislation where they recognize, for example, that we cannot have meaningful development globally until men and women are equal. Indeed, so yeah. they have this uh, legislation called the uh, Feminist International, oh gosh, what does it stand for? It's called the FIAP. So mm-hmm. it basically gives a feminist lens into everything that we do. So all Canadian government-funded programs have to make sure that they are transforming the the lives of women and um, trans, uh, like dismantling the structures that uh, perpetuate that inequality. Mm. Wow. Yeah, so it's, 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 they're doing well. Mm-hmm. The conditions are hard. Can they do more? You know, we always want more. more but uh, I think my spirit right now is that of gratitude okay. that the Canadian government is doing, uh, is a leader actually in international development when it comes to supporting especially issues that advance the cause of girls and and women oh that's awesome that's good to know go canada you know absolutely (laughs) we should be proud of the work that canada is doing globally i'm going to give you a minute uh i'm going to give you an opportunity in just a minute to be able to tell any of my listeners how they can help uh, your organization whether to become a sponsor or to make a donation but i just wanted to ask you uh, before that do you know of the percentage of young girls that are, are becoming child brides ah i don't have those statistics mm-hmm. but i know one country that comes to mind mm-hmm. is uh, is malawi okay where we have uh, a lot of this and um the poorer a country is the higher the rate of uh, forced and child marriages. You'll notice that whenever I talk about this, I'm intentional in putting the word forced mm. because there's no 12-year-old voluntary. who goes into mm-hmm. this uh, sexual uh, assault Definitely. relationship yeah. willingly. Exactly. I, I hear you. I agree. Yes. Children are children and they just want to be children and play. 
So Sharon, when they're forced into marriage, that is taking on the full responsibility of an adult woman, correct? Absolutely. And then I mentioned that I work in the area of uh, HIV. So how does um, child marriage impact uh, the work that we do in HIV? If she's uh, 14 Mm -hmm. and she's married to a man who is significantly older, she is uh, in a relationship where she has no power. Mm. She, from the get-go, cannot negotiate for safe sex. She's not in a position to talk about uh, family planning, for example. She's likely to have uh, a lot of kids Mm -hmm. and uh, who are closely spaced. And she's likely to, because of the physiology, she's still very young, um, she's likely to have complications with the pregnancy and with the delivery. And the, the statistics for women who die um, in, childbirth. in childbirth or pregnancy mm-hmm. is uh, a leading cause among oh. girls aged 15 to 19. Oh, mercy. Wow, wow. What about- and all that is mm-hmm. preventable. And when we come to HIV infection or sexually transmitted in- in- infections, she's at higher risk. Uh, because once you are in a in a union, a, a marriage, for example, where you have no say particularly, um, and you can negotiate for safe sex, and also the increased frequency mm. of having sex, mm. uh, it means it increases the chances of you contracting uh, a sexually transmitted infection, including HIV and AIDS. Oh wow, mercy. Also, I would figure this, um, there's a lot of abuse going on too, you know, because these are young girls and then you're looking at depression because here it is, a young 12-year-old is now become a mother and she's got the household chores to take care of and there's no self-worth there anymore. She, you know, she doesn't even know who she is anymore. She's just basically a property to her husband. So I'm sure that's an opportunity for depression to set in. I I actually blinked a couple of times when you talked about depression. Mental health is one area, I would say, that still lags behind when it comes to international development. Mm. It's one area where, as the um, non-governmental organizational sector, we need to ramp up, that we need to do a better job in integrating that into the work that we do. Uh, Our defense likely has been that we are firefighting, we are dealing with bread and butter issues, and uh, we haven't really had time to to think and reflect about uh, the mental health impact Hmm. of the circumstances that these uh, people are in, right? But... uh, we are starting to to talk about it. Starting um, is always good. <laughs> yes, where we address it is in a reactive way, okay. where maybe there has been um, an abuse, and we come in with uh, psychosocial support or support uh, after a, a traumatic event. Okay. Wow. 
yeah, you yeah. Know, so we need to work on that. Yeah, definitely. You know, you mentioned that you have actually been to one of these countries. Uh, do you have any success stories that you could share with us? There are a lot. There are a lot of success stories. I think I'm a success story. Okay. I was born and raised in Zimbabwe. I was raised by my grandmother who had three years of education mm. from about the fourth grade. I was started reading letters for her and writing letters for her. And I think maybe that's why I enjoy reading and writing because from an early age, not by choice, mm-hmm. but circumstance, I found myself being the chief correspondent for my uh, for my grandmother and I think the differentiator for me was the education mm-hmm. okay. and um, as I travel I always share my story with the girls that I not well, not too long ago <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> I'm 19 <laughs> oh, yes. not too long ago I was one of you that right. I say that I'm like not too long ago I was one of you uh-huh. And uh, the opportunity that was given me was mm. education, and I ran with that. Sure, yeah. And um, so some of the success stories that we see, you asked me about COVID-19. In Malawi, we have a project where we were uh, training the girls on how to make and sell uh, reusable sanitary pads. Okay. COVID-19 heat, um, they started making a reusable masks. Mm-hmm. And they are making money out of that. And I met in Malawi um, a group of girls who are doing a variety of projects. Some are doing baking, some um, decorations, what you call it, for events and things like that. Mm-hmm. And um, Event planning. Event planning, yes. And when I asked them um, about, so what do you do with the money? Uh, some of them have children that they're supporting. Some live with grandparents, uh, and they are the main uh, income breadwinner. But the story that touched me the most was that they were putting aside money so that three of their members could go back to school. Oh, awesome. Yeah, that's powerful. And I'm like, yeah, see, mm-hmm. when they value education so yes. much, they'll work for it yeah. collectively and say, we'll send three of our members back to school. And uh, to me, when I leave that, I feel we are making a difference. Definitely, yeah. Um, so there's lots of success stories when the girls graduate uh, from high school after they've been supported by the project. Uh, and when parents can sit down with their children and have uh, these conversations and listen to their children without... Uh, without judgment mm-hmm. awesome. and realize and respect the children's right to choice and decision making and supporting that choice and that they have a voice even as a child exactly That's exactly awesome. exactly awesome. so we've had a lot of uh success stories we still have a lot of work to be done but the ground that has been covered Mm -hmm. uh, is enormous amazing that's great you know you've just mentioned about the graduation how long does a a girl usually stay in the program for they um, stay they the groups the peer groups that are set up they end up transcending beyond the life of the project so the project that I'm working on 
it's in uh, three-year sprints. Okay. So every three years, we get a, a new round of funding. And um, so the girls, uh, there's some girls who were in a group together and they came together because of the project and they did whatever training that they did and uh, they decided they wanted recreation and they started a, a netball okay. team. Nice. And uh, they got uh, uniforms for their netball team. And then now they just travel Mm -hmm. in the district. I think they've traveled outside the district to playing netball. They are not like in the project as such, but they are former. So I talked about social asset Mm -hmm. because the isolation, I think, which also speaks to the depression and mental wellness uh, is a big factor. But when you are in a group and you have a situation and you have people that you can talk to, so they have maintained those relationships and it looks like they want to continue those relationships and those relationships are serving them well. Yeah, sounds that way. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. You know, Sharon, I said I would give you an opportunity to uh, speak on the organization and how anyone listening can... um, become a sponsor or make a donation go ahead and tell us how do does one get in touch with um plan canada awesome yes we really can use all the help so we are online is plancanada.ca or you can uh, look us up by just googling because i am a girl and then there's uh, options there to send your donation uh online and I don't know our 800 number, but it will also be on our on our website. And you can call in and give your donation by phone. So you can also choose to sponsor a, a child or you can give to a specific campaign. So it's plancanada.ca. So I found your number. I happened to just pull up your website real quick. And the, oh, number, <laughs> the number here is that it's one 800 Three eight seven one four one eight. Does that sound about right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'll say it again. It's one eight hundred three eight seven one four one eight. And I will uh, put that in the description box so anyone that's listening that wants to call, you can uh, get the number, access to that number there. Well, Sharon, it was really great having you here today sharing about um all that your organization does. It's doing some brilliant work. Is there any final words, anything else in closing that you'd like to say before we end our conversation today? Thank you so much for having me. And um, I think what I'd like to leave with everyone is just to acknowledge that we all want the same things. And the parents in developing countries want the best for their children. And we can partner with them to to do that. Mm, that's beautiful. That's so true. Yeah. Awesome. Very good. Thank you so much again, Sharon, for being my guest today. I really, really enjoyed um, hearing you share about what your amazing organization, Plan International, is doing. And I, for one, definitely will be making a donation for the worthy causes that you have mentioned here today. And just thank you again. Take care and have an awesome, awesome rest of your day. Thank you so much, Kathleen, and I thank you for that donation. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the show today. 
I hope you enjoyed the topic and found something that you can apply to your own life. Don't forget to share this episode with your family and friends. And remember, live well daily. Thank you.